Ibn Battuta, the most noted explorer of the medieval world, narrated a series of first-hand comprehensive and historically precious observations on lands to which he traveled over almost 30 years in the 14th century. This Moroccan traveler passed through countless communities, cities, and lands, and his observations, experiences, and encounters have much to tell about the world and its workings in medieval times. Guided and inspired by Ibn Battuta's footsteps, this podcast opens a portal into the world of the East for people who are curious about the past, hungry for the marvels of traveling, and contemplate the wonders of cities. Accompany us over our journeys into the distant, unfamiliar, and unknown. Ibn Battuta's extensive, vibrant observations and remarks on his journey from Cairo in the 14th century vividly evoke the sense of the metropolis under the Mamluks' patronage. Sophisticated mosques, widespread Sufi hospices, numerous colleges, specialized hospitals, and bustling bazaars are just some of the features reported by Ibn Battuta that describe and unveil the charms of Cairo at the golden era of the Mamluks. In the last episode, we explored Mamluk Sultanate, their vastness of territory, their origin and their ruling psychology with Professor Doris Baron Abu Saib. We sit with her on another round of conversation to discuss about Mamluk's urban, socio-cultural landscapes and their built legacy in Cairo. My name is Ray Behboudi and I will be the host of the program today. Hello, Professor Doris, and welcome to the show. Hello, Ray. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you here. What was the status of Cairo when the Mamluks came to power? And in what way did the Mamluks contribute to its evolution into a fruitless metropolis? So when the Mamluks came at the end of the Ayyubid period, Cairo was a double city. Well, it was composed of two cities, in fact, Al-Fustat, which was in the south, close to the Nile, the first Arab foundation, which became the Arab Egyptian capital, uh, the Egyptian Islamic capital. And then after that, and there were other satellite cities that came later, also center of government. These were satellites, and they were not far from Fustat, but outside and became part of it and integrated into it. Then came the Fatimid and built their own residential city, which was the city of the rulers of Cairo. It was connected to Cairo, but mainly it was the center of the court of the caliph's retinue. It was a special, the royal city, the commercial and industrial city remained Fustat and its satellite. When Salah al-Din came and evicted or overthrew the Fatimid Caliphate, he wanted to unite completely so Fustat with Al-Qahira so that there's no royal city and ordinary city. And to do that, he opened the gates and made the city now one city instead of two different ones. And in order also to emphasize this, he wanted to have a wall, constructed fortification that encompassed the double city. He died before completing the scheme, but he built the citadel as following the model of Syrian cities, where at that time, during the age of the Crusades, the rulers resided in citadels on hills as fortification as and royal residence at the time. So this is what the Mamluk found. There was plenty of gap between Fustat and Al-Qahira. 
and it was made in the reign of Nasser Muhammad, who was very ambitious builder. They were all ambitious builder, but he had a very uh, urban vision. He wanted to fill the city, and he encouraged his emirs to go and build and build as far as possible and as remote as possible to expand urban boundaries. So he wanted to enlarge the city and to fill the gaps. The building activity was so great and it was lucrative. There was not necessarily competition between the different emirs, perhaps a little bit, but the idea was to put a collective building activity, a collective patronage, so that you have as many mosques as possible, as many minarets as possible, all of them representing Mamluk identity and Mamluk, uh, and Mamluk patronage. And this idea of widening the city remained. Also in the 15th century, new quarters were founded to fill gaps or to upgrade areas that had declined. There was always an urban mind in Mamluk uh, building activity. It was not just putting a big monument, it's putting a new area. It's uh, to build a quarter with all what belongs to it. And also for reasons of waqf and foundation endowments, this was made very useful because the commercial facilities finance the religious. So if you want to pay for a religious a mosque or a madrasa to make for the staff, for the students, for the scholars, you need an income. And the income was provided by the commercial structures, by shops, bakeries, you call it baths, and all ever whatever used for urban. When you build a mosque, you build at the same time commercial things to finance it. So it is an urban project. It's profitable on many sides. We will listen to a passage from the travels and we'll get back to our discussion. As for the madrasas, colleges in Cairo, they are too many for anyone to count. And as for the Maristan Hospital, which is between the two castles near the mausoleum of Al-Malik al-Mansur Qalawun, no description is adequate to its beauties. It is equipped with innumerable conveniences and medicaments, and its revenue is reported to be a thousand dinars a day. The convents, too, are numerous. The people there call them khawaniq, the singular being khanqa, and the emirs in Cairo vie with one another in building them. We just listened to a vivid description of Cairo and its monuments by Ibn Battuta. What drove the Mamluks to compete in constructing so many charitable and religious foundations? The urban prosperity is one of the tasks of a ruler. A good ruler has to provide a city with all amenities and with all what is needed for its comfort and for its commercial and uh, prosperity. The other thing also was not only the charity, first of all, because they were not a dynasty. Every Mamluk Sultan was in danger to be forgotten because there was no dynasty, there was no son who would, in a dynastic system, the early ones are always remembered by the later ones because they are the ancestors. So I think the idea to be not to be forgotten made them very keen to build a religious foundation with their own mausoleum. Don't forget, all these religious foundations have the founder's mausoleum. You have the place where the founder himself is buried, made him commemorated. 
So it was a way of to commemorate themselves, not to be forgotten and to be celebrated through history, which happened. And this is what really they were successful in that. And there is the other fact. It is the Waqf system, the Paris Foundation system. When you want to build something charitable, that you have to set sponsors, that gives money to, you need the staff, you need the religious services, you have to dedicate some commercial structures to make some investments that would finance the charitable things. So they had to buy land, to acquire land, to acquire shops, to build shops, to build all kinds of commercial structures, to build all kinds of lucrative structures, and so business that would provide an income, and with this income, you pay for the foundation forever. So it was an inseparable part of the religious foundation, the commercial assets that would finance it over time, when long after the, the founder is dead. So usually there was something here that allowed the founder to keep some of the income for himself and of his family. There's nothing illegal with that. He simply buys and dedicates more investment to finance and he would write in the stipulation trying to cover the expense and so much also to be given to members of the family or to give them position, administrative position. This was a way of securing also some kind of financial support to their descendants who were not secured because there was no uh, hereditary succession. So to provide for the children and children's children. So there was evidently selfish profitable aspect in this and there was the legitimation, there was the memory and there was also, well, you do think this, you see today we still speak of them and how we speak of them, we commemorate them. So this was a successful strategy, not to be forgotten, and uh, look how we talk about them. So, as you just illustrated, this construction-oriented mindset was serving multiple functions, and Mamluks were cleverly benefiting from them all. Cairo of the Mamluks, maybe we can say, was a melting pot of marvelously diverse ethnic groups. Who were some of the major migrant communities and what brought them to the city? And why did they choose Al-Qahira to reside in either for a short time or permanently? The Mamluk themselves, who came from elsewhere, and very often they brought their families or they invited their families to join them. Then the Mongols, who came as refugees, many from other parts of the Muslim world came to study, to make commerce from Iran. There is another thing. All of Egypt, as in, despite the crisis, was a very stable place. The, nobody, it was not attacked. The Mongols didn't reach Cairo. Timur devastated Syria, but he couldn't reach Cairo. Cairo was not touched before the Ottoman, so it remained always a safe place, which never had to deal with foreign troops. During the entire Mamluk history, you had refugees coming from elsewhere, especially from Iran and from the east. After the Mongol invasion, after Timur's invasion, there was a continuous influx of migrants and there was a continuous population of Iranian and there was at some period even Sultan al-Mu'ayr was trying to reduce the migration of Iranians because there were too many. So can we say that Cairo relative stability was so inviting to the migrants from east and beyond? Yes, absolutely. It was constantly a place where which has not been threatened from all the years between 1250 and 1517, it has not been the city of Cairo itself. Alexandria was, was raided 
by Crusaders, but they were everywhere. But nobody came near Cairo. So this is why also Cairo on the long run lost its fortification. There was no need to fortify Cairo. Cairo was fortified or fortified at the borders and the at the ports and so on. So Cairo itself until the Ottoman come have never be, has never been threatened during the Mamluk period. In the religious landscape, Mamluks were supporting a multi-right policy that respected all branches of Islam. What was their aim with this policy? And do we know the outcomes of this religious pluralism and tolerance? Of course, this was inherited. The Mamluks, after the fall of the Abbasid Caliphate, had established in Cairo a kind of also an Abbasid Caliphate. This is very important. Should have been said perhaps should have said that earlier. They made Cairo also a center of a caliphate of a caliph. So one of the relatives of the Abbasid Caliph, caliphs who had been overthrown by the Mongols, was invited to Cairo to be a caliph. So he has ceremonial role to invest the Sultan. He didn't have any political or even much religious function, but ceremonial representative function. By doing this, the Mamluks made Cairo the successor of Baghdad, a center of spiritual authority, of caliphal authority, and even some rulers, as far as in India, would uh, would write, would ask for a document of investiture from the caliph of Cairo for their legitimation. So the Abbasid uh, Caliphate was multi-right. They allowed the four rights of Islamic law, the four schools of Islamic law to flourish. They are the four schools accepted by orthodoxy in general. They have equally valid, but they are geographically differently distributed. In North Africa, for example, it's the Maliki uh, school that prevails. In Egypt, it is the Shafi'i and the Maliki. And when the Mamluk came, they were Hanafi themselves, like most of the Turkic and Eastern regions, so they preferred or they supported the Hanafi right. So when the Mamluks came, they inherited this Abbasid tradition of promoting equally or, or, or accepting uh, the multi-right idea, and it was already there under the Ayyubid. The Ras Ayyubid Sultan, who had recruited Mamluk, founded in his madrasa was for the four mazhab or the four right of Islamic law. And the Mamluks kept this. The Egyptian population was generally Shafi'i, the Mamluk establishment was Hanafi, but you have most of the madrasas were for multiple mazhab. So, and this contributed also to the international standing that people could come and study. Ibn Khaldun, the great philosopher, uh, was belonged to the Maliki, uh, right, as North African, and he came and taught the Maliki the Maliki right. There was a caliph in Cairo. It was part of this international Islamic politics. Caliph was authority for all to have to be the, the guardians of the holy cities and the big patrons of religious institutions for the whole Muslim world. In the social fabric of the Mamluk Sultanate, what were the main roles and jobs held by elite members of the social order? Just if you can give us a few examples, they were jurists or they were emirs or what were the top main roles? You had two systems. You have the men of the pen and the men of the sword. And the men of the sword were the Mamluks and they were, in a way, it's a class or a caste distinct from the other one and were the superior one. They were responsible for the military and there were some positions in the government that were to be occupied by men of the sword. And there were the men of the pen, who were the learned, the local, the indigenous, 
who occupied position as judges. Even the caliph himself was representative of rather of the man of the pen. However, toward the 15th century, things merged and we find more and more men of the pen occupying positions that were previously dedicated to only men of the sword. That's a very fabulous distinction or labor division between the rows, like a man of the pen and man of the sword. When you walked in Cairo, in the Mamluk period, you could tell who is who by the dresses. There were certain people who were allowed to wear certain dresses. You could tell also ethnic groups had their own clothes. So people were labeled by the clothes they were wearing. So the men of the of this pen did not dress like the men of the sword at all. They were not allowed to. They had their own headgear, their own headdress, they had their own kind of gowns. And you would tell immediately, this is a judge, this is a scholar, this is a, a mamluk, this is an administrator, this is a soldier, this and so forth. So this, this the labels were there. To put everyone in their place. It's like that the dresses and appearance of people in the streets were very much indicative of their social standing. I just want to know a little bit more about the foreigner elites who took over some major roles in the Mamluks dynasty. Can you just give us some examples like Ibn Khaldun? Who else you can think of? Oh, yes, of course Ibn Khaldun who came from outside and occupied a high position at that time this was quite common because the main thing there was no national identity there was ethnic perhaps and there was religious identity so you couldn't make ethnic differences the only difference is that if you are muslim or not muslim once you are muslim anybody can take any position in the 15th century one of the market inspectors was came from Herat, today afghanistan but from the eastern iran so he was an iranian who spoke apparently Arabic with a heavy Persian accent. The son-in-law and great secretary of Sultan Inal was a Cypriot. He had been captured during the war of Cyprus, became a Mamluk. The Sultan liked him and made him marry his daughter. And then he became his great secretary and the man who was in charge of all foreign relationship. And this was a man from Cyprus. We were witnessing a massive social mobility in the society. There was, a, to some extent, a social mobility, but within the religion of Islam. A Christian or a Jew would not be able to, uh, unless he converted, to reach a higher position. They could be rich as merchants, professionals in whatever processions, or as physicians. One of the great, uh, also Sultan al-Mu'ayyad, was a Jew from Isfahan. He was a physician, a Jewish physician from Isfahan, who came and somehow found the support and patronage of Sultan al-Mu'ayyad and became one of his major administrators. And as I said, the identity was not so much ethnic or lingual. Once you are a Muslim, you are part of the society. This was the same thing in medieval Europe at that time. During the 14th century, countless Sufi institutes from every order emerged throughout Mamluks govern Cairo, and many of these were founded by Iranians. Why did the Mamluks so generously support the Sufis and Sufis Foundation? Sufis has always been integrating when new groups, social groups, when new ethnic groups came in. Sufism always in all parts of the Muslim world works as a kind of melting pot where people whose origin were different could find a common platform. Almost all Mamluk sultans were acclimated to Sufism. The Egyptian and well, the Mamluk Sufism in Egypt and Syria was not very esoteric. 
It was a mild kind of Sufism. Sufism was so widespread in Egypt, thanks to Mamluk patronage, Sufism was the religious way in Mamluk Egypt. Here I love to ask a question about ceremonies at the time of Mamluks. But first, we can listen to another passage from Ibn Battuta's travels on Cairo, which would give us first-hand indications. And then we will continue our conversation. It is said that in Cairo, there are 12,000 water carriers who transport water on camels and 30,000 hirers of moons, mules and donkeys and that on its Nile there are 36,000 vessels belonging to the Sultan and his subjects which sail upstream to Upper Egypt and downstream to Alexandria and Dumyat, laden with goods and commodities of all kinds. On the bank of the Nile, opposite Cairo, is the place known as Arrauda, the garden, which is a pleasure park and promenade, containing many beautiful gardens. The people of Cairo are fond of pleasure and amusement. I once witnessed a fete there which was held for a Malik al-Nasr's recovery from a fracture which he had suffered in his hand. All the merchants decorated their bazaars and had rich stuff. Ornaments and silken fabrics hung up in their shops for several days. As Ibn Battuta and many other witnesses reported, the streets of Cairo were always hosting ceremonies of one kind and another, and the people of Cairo were fond of amusement. Why Mamluks were so interested in ceremonies and what sorts of occasions were deemed worthy of being celebrated? Well, I think this is an Egyptian phenomenon. If you read Evliya Chalabi, who was a Turkish traveller in Egypt in the 17th century and knew Egypt very well, he is astonished and amazed by the number of celebrations and ceremonies that took place in Cairo at that time. Also, travellers who visited Egypt in all period noticed that there are plenty of celebrations in Cairo at that time. So I think this is a Cairo's phenomenon from the very beginning. I wonder if it goes back to the ancient Egyptians, possibly. Then you had, of course, the religious feast. Then you had the Sultans themselves were the center of many celebrations. Every time the Sultans went down to the city, it was with a parade and procession. They visited people, they were not secluded in the palaces. And every time the Sultan appeared, there was a very strict protocol on what occasion, uh, how the procession should look like on each occasion. If he was going on to play polo, or if he was going on simply for traveling, each occasion had its own specific protocol of appearance and so on. So these were very important, and it was a kind of communication between the Sultan and his people, who would look, and they always expected the Sultan to be dressed and to appear and to be glorious as much as possible. And they were very proud when the sultans looked great. They were very proud, this is the image of Islam, and they loved that. So I always say that when if you learn really to know what is Mamluk art really, it's much more how the processions looked like when, and the parades in the street than what objects are in the museum, in the museums today. The ceremonies, the parades, and all the celebrations were actual 
representation of the society and the relationship between the sultan and people. Very last question. Can you tell us if there is any work you are currently doing on the Sultanate of the Mamluks that we can expect to see in the future? Uh, my latest book, which is now in the production, will be published by Brill, and it's called Dress and Dress Code in Medieval Cairo, a Mamluk Obsession. It is more about what clothing meant in the Mamluk period, and if you want to know more, wait until my book comes out at the end of this year. We look forward to your upcoming book. It was a fabulous talk. Thank you, Darius, for joining us over these two episodes and guiding us on this amazing virtual exploration throughout Cairo of Mamluks. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Oriental Journeys podcast. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also check out our website www.theorientaljourneys.com which you can find the key information and some interesting codes from each episode. All the passages from Ibn Battuta observations have been selected from the English translation The Troubles of Ibn Battuta, translated from Arabic to English by Hamilton Gibb and Charles Beckingham, published for the Hucklode Society in five volumes. Our editor and creative consultant is Kate O'Connell. Adegan Kars and Ashkan Bahrani are our content advisors from Monash University. Frank Joachim reads the passages from the travels of Ibn Battuta. The music was composed by Ali Goygin and Tia Goodwin, cover art designer.